Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. This week, you can join me in Esther chapter 8. This week, we're wrapping up our sermon series on the book of Esther. Um, If you're joining us for the first time, you're joining at the end of a long and winding journey through the book of Esther. Um, We've spent the last, well, we've spent five Sundays so far looking at the book of Esther. Today will be number six. And at the very beginning of our journey through the book, we talked about one really unique characteristic that sets the book of Esther apart from every other book in the Bible. And it's been our guiding principle, the the thing that we've used as a tool to navigate through the book this whole way for all six weeks. See, the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. The name of God is never mentioned. Really, the concept of God is never mentioned outside of a call to fast. And fasting implies prayer, and prayer implies that there's a God, but only that's the closest we get to any kind of reference to God. And so what we've been using is this book, we've been using it as a story, the story as a teacher for us in how we find God when it seems like we can't find him. How to hear God when it seems like everything's silent. How do we find God in our story when it doesn't look like God's a part of our story? How do we hear God when it doesn't seem like God is speaking? And this week, our story comes to an end. Last week, we we had what you might call a happy ending. Specifically, a happy ending for Mordecai. And and, and for Esther a little bit too. As as we saw last week, the urgency of the life of Mordecai being threatened. And and he was almost killed. But we see that the Lord has the incredible power to take the plans of the enemy and turn them into blessings for his people. As Haman had laid out this plan to kill Mordecai, to to kill this man because he had shown him what he perceived as disrespect. And we see that through the hand of God at work, the plan for Mordecai, or the plan for Haman to kill Mordecai, ends with Mordecai being blessed ends with Mordecai receiving all of the blessings that the enemy thought he was storing up for himself, that we see the the power of God to turn the plans of the enemy into blessings for his people. But that was really only a zoomed-in happy ending. It was a very specific happy ending to that one part of the story because when you zoom out, when when you move out, what you discover is that 
the Jewish people were still under threat of being killed. That, that even with Haman being taken care of and, and his, his life no longer being a part of the story, his, his edict, his command still was. And so the Jewish people were still looking towards the end of the year, the, the 13th day of the last month, they were still scheduled for execution. And so we have this zoomed in close up happy ending where Mordecai survived Haman. But when you zoom out, you discover that Mordecai is still sentenced to death. And so that's where our story this week picks up, is this moment where we see sort of the small happy ending transition into what we hope will become a bigger happy ending. And so we start at verse 1 of, of Esther chapter 8, as sort of our last story wraps up. That same day, the same day where Mordecai is honored and Haman is killed, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the, the, enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. This is a great wrap-up for that first happy ending. See, what happens is that Mordecai is actually put in the position that Haman had. That, that he is elevated from a man that was literally hours away from death to the second most important person in the Persian Empire. It's this incredible story, again, of God's amazing power to work in the midst of the terrible to bring about blessings. But it's not the full happy ending that we're looking for. There's still this just one problem. The Jews are still scheduled to be killed. And so we see Esther come to the king. We see Esther the queen come to her husband the king and see if anything can be done about this. And we read in verse 5, if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor, and he thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, this is the recipe of how you ask your spouse for a big favor. That, that's a lot of buttering up. That, that's a lot of, you know, if you, if, if, if you think well of me, and if you think it's a good idea, and, and together we think it's a good idea, and, and you, you look like me, and you like me, and all the, then maybe let me ask you something. It's a lot of buttering up to ask for a big favor. Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Now, if you remember last week, if you were with us last week, the king told Esther over and over again, whatever you want, my queen, it's yours. Whatever you want, even up to half my king, you can ask me for whatever you want, and the answer will be yes. But what we discover here is even for the most powerful man on earth, there are some things that he can't do. And we've, we've seen a couple of times throughout this book, we're reminded that whatever the laws that the king made, 
they can't be changed. We're reminded, we were first shown that in Esther chapter 1, when Queen Vashti is banished, and we're told after that she's banished by order of the king, that no order of the king can be changed. And then we see it again when Haman makes this order to kill all of the Jewish people that are in the Persian Empire. We're reminded again, no order of the king can be changed. And now we come to the place where we see that's really true. That the king said, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. Esther says, change the law. And the king says, that's the one thing I can't do. I can't change the law. But Xerxes does what he can do. And he gives his signet ring to Mordecai, the same thing that he did for Haman. He gives him this ring, and says, which, which gives him the power of the throne of the king. He, he now has the ability to write a law, write an order, write a command with the same significance that the king himself would. And he gives this to Mordecai this time instead of Haman. And he tells him, if you can figure out a way around this, go for it. But you can't just say that old command doesn't apply anymore. But we see Mordecai come up with a plan. In verse 10, it says this, Mordecai wrote in the name of the king Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict, so this is what Mordecai's plan is. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and plunder the property of their enemies. The king's, and we discover that this this new edict of the king just happens to take effect, happens to be good for the same day as the last edict. So when we talked about Haman's edict, we discovered that it was for the 13th day of the last month of the year that this was supposed to take place. And Mordecai writes this new edict and says, the Jews have the right to defend themselves one day this year, and it just so happens to be the same day as that other edict. And if you remember, when when we talked about Haman's edict, we we came to this place at the end of Esther chapter 3, where where Haman and King Xerxes, they sit down and have a drink. And the edict has gone out to the entire empire, saying this is what's going to take place. And at that moment we read, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The people were confused. They didn't know why. They didn't know what was going on. They suddenly just got this edict, and it was confusing. But here we are, exactly five chapters later. In Exodus, or sorry, in Esther chapter 3, verse 15, we read that the city of Susa was bewildered. But Mordecai sends his edict out saying that the Jews, they're allowed to defend themselves. And in Esther chapter 8, verse 15, we read, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Exactly five chapters later, we go from the people being confused and not understanding to the people saying, thank God. And we continue to read, 
For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. They couldn't change the law, but they could at least give the people an opportunity. And for the Jewish people, it went from you're going to die to you at least have an opportunity to live. And that alone was enough for the people to celebrate, to say, God has given us a chance to have our lives back. It's not necessarily a sure thing, and it's not a sure, but at least we have an opportunity. Before, they weren't allowed to even fight back. Now, the law was that they were going to be killed, so I imagine they probably would have fought back anyway, because what are they going to do, kill me? Well, that's what they're here to do anyway. But now, they could fight back with impunity. They, they, they were allowed to fight. If somebody came to attack them, they could kill them, and they wouldn't face consequence for it. They were allowed to fight back. They were afforded the chance to live. And compared to where they were before, that alone was a reason to celebrate. And so then we turn the page to chapter 9. And Esther chapter 9 jumps to the big day, the 13th day of the last month. And it says this. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out, both edicts. And we read, on this day, the enemies of the Jews hoped to overpower them, but the tables were turned. And whenever I read that phrase, I think, well, 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 how the turntables have turned. But we read, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. And if you keep reading, what you'll discover is that in the city of Susa, 800 people were killed by the Jewish people. And in the entire empire, about 75,000 people were killed by the Jewish people. Now, there's a couple things that I would just like to take a moment to note for you here. Because it can seem awfully strange to, to spend all of this time talking about, we're, we're living under this fear that the Jewish people are going to die and then somehow celebrate that 75,000 other people died. That those people were people too. And so we don't want to just be like, yay, God, all these people died, yay. That, that's, not, that's not what we want. We want need to understand a couple of things so we're understanding it in its correct context. See, Mordecai gave an edict that the Jewish people had the right to defend themselves against anyone who attacked them. It didn't give them permission to attack anyone who first wasn't an aggressor. They didn't have the ability to go looking for a fight. They just had the ability to defend themselves if one came to them. The second thing, this whole event was limited to one day. The original edict and the follow-up edict were both for just this one day, the 13th day of the last month. And one last thing that I think that's important for us to see. In the edict given by Mordecai, there's one final clause that we read. We read that the Jews were given permission to plunder the prosperity of their enemies. But if you read through the remainder of Esther chapter 9, 
you'll see it noted in multiple places that the Jewish people chose not to do that. They chose not to plunder. And what that shows us is that this wasn't about vengeance for the Jewish people. This wasn't about revenge. This wasn't about vengeance. It was about vindication for the Jewish people. They were allowed the opportunity to live, and they took the opportunity to live. And so this day of violence comes, and then it comes to an end. Probably about 100,000 people at least die on this one day. But then we see the Jewish people do something here that was very customary after experiencing a victory at the hand of God. They stopped and they gave thanks. In fact, this day becomes a national holiday for the Jewish people. It's a day called Purim. And the reason why it's called Purim, if, if you were with us and if you remember back, when Mordecai was deciding the day in which to perform his plan, the day in which to command all the, the Israel or all the Jewish people to be killed, we talked about how he rolled some dice to pick the day. Well, the, the name for those dice was called a purr. And so when they picked the name for the day, they named it after the dice that Mordecai rolled and called it Purim. And so we see that them, them recognizing that, that even though the hand of man wanted to do evil things, God saw fit to save them by using a Gentile king through the influence of their divinely placed queen. And in fact, Mordecai and Esther make sure that this holiday would stand the test of time. We see that they write another letter to the Jewish people, the one, one with a much happier tone that's not filled with violence and it's not filled with killing, but instead it's written in a very different tone. And we read this letter in chapter 9, verse 28. We read this. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. That's a lot of everys. They are making it abundantly clear, everyone, everywhere, that lives in every time, every single person needs to remember this. This day needs to be celebrated by everyone, everywhere. They continue to write, and these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. And then we come to chapter 10. And we'll look at all of chapter 10 together because it's just three verses. But, so we'll look at what chapter, chapter 10 says. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. And all his acts of power and might together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to, the, to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the people or for the good of his people 
and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. It's a party. It's a celebration of all that God has done to flip the script on Haman's plans for annihilation. And you know, throughout the Old Testament, we see this as a common reaction of God's people to celebrate what the Lord has done. God provides, so they throw a party. God provides again, they throw another party. We see that they celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates God's faithfulness in allowing the first fruits of the harvest every year. They celebrate the Feast of Passover, which celebrates their salvation from Egypt. They celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which celebrates the first days of the Exodus. And they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorates God's provision for their wandering in the desert. And now they have the Feast of Purim. Once again, God has prevailed on behalf of his people. And so, as our series comes towards its end, I've just got one question left for you. Why don't we do this more? How often in our lives do we stop and give thanks, even in prayer, on a regular basis? How often do we stop and give thanks to God when we see an answer to prayer? I think more often than not, as we pray for things and we see answers to our prayer, we think, well, that's great because it gives me the chance to move on to the next thing. And instead of stopping and celebrating, look at what the Lord has done. Look at the goodness of God. We can often pray and pray and pray and then see the result. And then we just keep moving forward. Never mind throwing a party to celebrate what God has done. But what would it look like if we, as followers of Jesus, followed in these kinds of footsteps and we just celebrated? Celebrated what God has done. What would it look like for us as individuals? What would it look like for us as a church if we just celebrated? If we celebrated the provision of a new job? If we celebrated that we've been praying for somebody to get better? And they did. What if we celebrated, I mean properly celebrated, baptisms like we're going to have next week and, and we blew the lid off this place celebrating the recognition of lives lived in Jesus I think if we became a people who celebrated it would make us a more aware of the presence of God in our lives I think that we would become more grateful people I think that we would become more generous people. I think that we would become more joyful people. If instead of answers to prayer just being the, the shuffle on to the next thing, that we prayed for somebody to be safe on a trip, 
And guess what? They came back. We should celebrate. But instead, we just can have a tendency to move on. Well, that's good. They came back. That's what we all hope for. If we were people who just chose to celebrate, we would be noticed by the world and our witness would because it be because of God's goodness in our lives. But if we as a people just chose to celebrate the goodness of God and we were known as those people who celebrated everything because they're celebrating their God, what better witness could we have than God's goodness? To become a people who celebrates is certainly a worthy goal. And friends, it's a goal that sometimes might come with cake. Because how do you celebrate without cake? Amen, Amen. there you go, that's right. (laughs) And I realized in response to this, we should have had cake at church today. I didn't even think about it until this. But what I told the first service, and I'll tell you too, there's free bread available in the front room, and there's packets of sugar, so you can take some bread, put some sugar on it, that's that's close to cake. I mean, what's icing but just sugar in a different form? Um, And so you can get some bread, put some sugar on it, and you can have a makeshift cake. But what are we waiting for? Let's be a people who celebrate. Let's be a church who celebrates together. And when somebody's got, you know, Scripture will call us, to mourn with those who mourn, and we want to do that. But it will also call us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And let us as a church, when you've got something to rejoice, we want to rejoice with you. I want to celebrate with you. I want to thank God with you. Let's celebrate together. Now is our time today, and Our time in this series is drawing to a close. And as we look to celebrate, I'd like to read something over you. I'd like to read a passage of scripture over your life. Because even today, you may be thinking, but what do I have to celebrate? There's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 that I want to read over your life this morning. You don't have to read along with me. I I want you to receive it. I want you to receive this scripture with the heart behind it, with the beauty behind it, with the power behind it, and with the reasons behind it. That you would be filled to overflowing with celebration because of what this passage reminds us of. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Let me read this over you. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith, this is still about you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, 
Though for now, a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. We always need our reality checks. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, brothers and sisters, the salvation of your souls. Amen? Amen. Church, we have a reason to celebrate. If you name the name of Christ, you have a reason to celebrate. You have an inheritance saved up for you in heaven that cannot be taken away from you. You have the salvation of your soul. What more is there to celebrate? You know, my story is a lot like Esther's. And your story is probably a lot like Esther's. Not in terms of being royalty in faraway empires, but if that is the case, welcome your majesty. But in the sense that I've never seen the hand of God write a message in fire on a wall. I've never been confronted by a bush that was on fire but not burning and heard the voice of God speak to me from that bush. And to be honest, I've had many seasons where it was hard to see God at all. And there's been times where it was hard to hear God, where it seemed like all there was was silence. But when I look back on my story now, I can see him in all kinds of places where I thought that he wasn't. And his voice is profound. I know that God is in control. I know that God is good. I know that God is trustworthy. And I know that God hears me. I know that God is just. And I know that God rejoices over me. My God may be invisible, but I can see him all over my story. And in the places where maybe I can't see him now, maybe you can't see him now, 
we can live with confidence that one day we will. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that as we've moved through the story of Esther, as we've moved through the book of Esther, as we've walked through these challenging stories and these difficult moments, and God, I thank you that time after time and time again of coming to a place where seemingly in all of the awfulness, we would say time and again, how can we find God in this? Where time and place again in this story, over and over again, we are confronted by where is God? God, I thank you now that as we've come to the end of this story, the end of this book, God, I am so grateful that this book ends with a celebration of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And God, I pray that for each one of us, at all of the different points along this journey, for those who are here today that are asking, I don't, are saying, I don't know how God could be in any of this. God, I thank you that we can look to the end of the book of Esther where we could say over and over again, I don't know where God is in any of this, and it ends with a celebration of God's goodness. God, I pray that that would be a witness to each one of our hearts and to each one of our lives, that wherever we are right now, whatever we're experiencing right now, whatever situation we found ourselves in, that the end of the story will be a celebration of God's goodness. And God, I pray that as each one of our lives is filled with times and moments and difficulties and places where, where we need to see God and we're praying, God, would you do something? God, I pray that as each one of us journeys through life and each one of us comes to these moments and we pray for each other and, and we contend for one another and we pray and we pray that when we see an answer of prayer, God, may we be a people who celebrates. May we be a people who celebrate what the Lord has done. May we not just allow us to move on to the next, but God, may we stop, may we throw a feast, may we celebrate what the Lord has done. God, we want to celebrate your work in our lives. God, I thank you that for each one here, we have reason to celebrate and we will have reason to celebrate. And God, I pray that we would be faithful to celebrate your faithfulness. God, I thank you in Esther. We see the story of God at work in the silence. We see the story of God's power present when it seems like God's not there. And God, I pray for each one that that would be such a testimony in their lives when they need it, may it be brought back to them that no matter how absent God feels, God is in the middle of our story. God, I thank you for your never-ending, never-changing love and presence in our lives. And may we live every day aware that you are there with us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Small clouds all around. Couldn't see you. 
Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family, and that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca, or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on Contact Us from the main menu, or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on Our Pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. You'll find power.